0: Welcome to Breaking the Surface, where we break into a delicious beverage and also dive into the topic at hand. I'm one of your co-hosts, Taylor Kramer. I'm the owner and lead producer for Cold Shower Media.
1: I'm Pat Mulligan, I'm a journalist here in Traverse City.
2: And I'm another friend. I am Anthony Weber. And I am a pastor and an ethics teacher. And I am am something of a fashion icon when it comes to oversized sweaters.
0: The point here is that we want to go beyond the talking points to get to the depths of what is happening in our world. It should also be said that this podcast is part of the Boardman Review Podcast Collective in collaboration with Cold Charm Media. The Podcast Collective aims to provide unique content curated by the Boardman Review, the Creative Culture and Outdoor Lifestyle Journal of Northern Michigan. (laughs) Oh, that is an excellent way to start the day. And I I don't know how effective we would be. This is our first time recording an episode in the morning. And the only way we could agree to the terms is if we had black market coffee. And so this episode today, yeah, and good coffee, good coffee. And Chuck at black market does it really well. This is a light roast under the name Hex, which is bright, fruity, delicate. And it's an Ethiopian and Nicaraguan blend. What are you guys feeling?
1: I think it's delicious. This is, uh, for me, a very early time of day. I am not a morning person. I'm very much an afternoon and night owl. Um, but this is like, this is waking me up. This is good. It's, I, am also not very good at like describing the notes in coffee, but it is kind of like complex and it's, it's delicious. It's, tasty.
2: It, it's deeply satisfying. Yeah. I, I would get a refill of this and I would buy it for myself. Okay.
0: Yeah. And again, like Beth, the last episode we were drinking tea because it was so hot out. It was iced tea. Yeah. It's like cold again. It's mid-60s. Today. We're all wearing sweaters. Yeah, we're it's like the, sweaters. It's like literally
1: the summer solstice system. <laughs> we're all like bundled up and yeah. classic Michigan cold day.
0: But hey, the coffee is coming through. So thank you, Chuck at Black Market.
2: Welcome to episode nine of Breaking the Surface. It's good to be here this morning with Taylor and Beth. And we are going to dive into a topic this morning that has to do with freedom. So the background of this is uh, last couple months, I've been preparing to do a message at my church on the issue of racism. And as the three of us were talking about this, we recognize that this recording is at an interesting time. We're right between Juneteenth and the 4th of July. And in our discussion, we began to just kind of mull over what the experience of life in America, and particularly the gift of freedom, has been like for different people groups or different individuals in the history of the United States and even today. So we're gonna dive into that this morning in a number of different ways. Uh, Beth and Taylor, which one of you would like to take us into that discussion?
1: Well, I can I can just jump in a little bit here. So I would say, um, first of all, just to let folks know, I think most people will know at the time that this podcast comes out, but so we actually had Juneteenth uh, declared a federal holiday. Uh, this month, and actually, in the city of Trevor City, also issued a proclamation declaring it a, a formal holiday in our city. Um, so that was the first year that that's happened, and it went into effect this year. So we had some, cele- there was a celebration in our community. I know there were celebrations. And I think it's important to note that, again, this is a, an area that's a little sensitive, as many areas we'll probably talk about today are. But even without the federal recognition of the holiday, Juneteenth has been very important and celebrated by the Black community for you know hundreds of years, 100 and however many years it's been since 1865. Um, so we just have to acknowledge that importance, but it was, I think a good national step to go forward and recognizing that. I also wanted to recognize just because of the, some of the groups that I've worked with, it's also pride month in the month of June we're recording right now. And that conversation, uh, separately the idea of freedom, what kind of rights and privileges do we enjoy, um, also applies to that community as well. So those are just some of the things that are kind of On my mind right now, the timing is very significant, I think, to have this conversation.
0: Yeah, I was just, you know, had the realization last week as as it was Juneteenth and the the black friends in my (laughs) life, they were all like, we've been, you know, celebrating this and maybe not in the same way that we celebrate Fourth of July. Like, I don't know that they're going off and lighting fireworks and, and celebrating in that capacity, but they have been aware of it their entire lives, like the significance of that date. And I myself have not. It's just something that i you know i think i knew but i never really paid much attention to it and then specifically the last couple of years my view on the fourth of july itself has really changed and i distinctly remember last summer maybe more than any other year where i was just sitting in this feeling of as we're right in the middle of of the racial injustices that are continuing to unfold those were burning like really hot in the spring and then early summer and just thinking not everybody has it like I have it. And it was, it was kind of a bittersweet day because I was able to spend a lot of time outside with my family and celebrate that holiday on a safe way because we were still um, in the middle of COVID as well. But I just remember thinking, this is just such a strange feeling. I've never had to consider what the 4th of July means and, and what it doesn't mean to some other groups of people that don't look like me.
1: Yeah, I think one of the reasons this came up for me is so my partner and I have Mm -hmm. a a semi new home that we've moved into in the last several months. And so we're still, you know, getting things set up. And um, we had this flagpole on the side of the house. And because we were having people start to come this summer, we were getting some stuff done outside and he put up this American flag that had been in one of, you know, storage or whatever. And I I had this weird reaction (laughs) to it going up. And I think, you know, part of this conversation is that, you know, it's easy to go through life with such an unencumbered, simplistic view of like the American flag is good. This represents my country. This is the thing I pledge allegiance to or the 4th of July is just like this joyful celebration of our independence Um, And then I think when you start to hear other narratives and you start to research and spend time looking at it, I felt like these complex feelings about the flag because I I was realizing it is not seen the same way by everybody as it's seen Mm -hmm. by me. And we were happening to put it up before a gathering where a lot of diverse people were coming. And I was just like, what is this? Going to mean to them. I feel like the flag is just an example of how symbols can evolve and change over time, where it's gotten more complicated. I mean, we've seen, you know, like for example during the Vietnam War, there's been histories of the flag where it's been complicated. But once we put up a pride, a pride flag next to it, then I felt better, <laughs> so people wouldn't just assume. But like it, it means something now, where I just feel like a lot of these sort of big American ideas. If you've lived in a certain default, like a white default or a straight default or whatever it might be, sometimes these symbols go unexamined. And I just, I'm just starting to try to appreciate that they're more complex for other people, including the concept of freedom. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, I, so I have an American flag hanging on the wall in the studio here. And that was actually something I had to go through a similar thought process. Um, and I don't think it's an anti-American thought process to just wonder what does this flag mean and what is the complexities behind the flag being what it is and what this country is. And so that was something that for me was like, I am going to hang it. um, But it took me a while to arrive at that comfort level. And I've never felt like that was a anti-American thinking. I think it's maybe more American to, to understand the complexities and the struggles that are part of our country's story.
2: Well, it is interesting. I think you make a good point, Beth, that the American flag itself can create such a wide, variety of responses of people that hanging another flag beside it, your example is a pride flag. If someone would hang a Confederate flag beside it or a black lives matter flag beside it, uh, or the Christian flag beside it, all of those would add some type of clarification that would be important for someone to understand what you actually mean. Mm -hmm. So going back to our independence from Britain, one thing that strikes me is so we're celebrating at that point that we were free from someone else almost in a sense, owning us, right? Mm -hmm. Yay, we're free. And yet, of course, at that time in the United States, there were millions of people who on the day that many were celebrating their freedom from being owned, they continued to be owned. They continued to be owned for a long time. And so this idea that there, there would be a second federal holiday that celebrates a level of freedom from people who were owned and now no longer were, that is Juneteenth, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. Uh, why not celebrate two freedom events where people moved out from the ownership of others? And obviously slavery was a different kind. I don't mean to equate the experience of slaves with the experience of the colonists. I'm just talking as a principle. That was the whole point of freedom. Yeah. And it wasn't given to everyone. It wasn't given to millions and that didn't happen for uh, how many years?
1: Uh, Like another hundred, almost close to another hundred. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So I think it it does justice to our history to acknowledge both of those things.
1: I always think of the the line from the musical Hamilton, which is you know about obviously the American Revolution, and they're talking about this part where they win the war, and it's like black and white soldiers alike wonder if it's freedom, and then George Washington says not yet, like meaning not the blacks yep. yet, not slaves yet. And so, yeah, you you go another 100 years. And even with Juneteenth, I mean, it's so ironic that holiday. So the Emancipation Proclamation is signed in 1863. Mm-hmm. That news doesn't get to Texas until two years later. And even then, slave owners were sometimes strategically withholding the news until the harvest season was done. Or they could get their last sort of, you know, ringing mm-hmm. of labor out of these people who are supposed to be free, um, I just, I think to me, like the timing of that is a perfect embodiment of this idea of sort of just like the sort of guileless, like we're free and it's like, oh, but we forgot to tell you <laughs> that or, you're free. Or
2: we just don't want to tell you that <laughs> Or you're we just free. don't want
1: to tell mm-hmm. you that you're free. And then you go right into like, even things like, you know, giving black men voting rights a few years later, even then, like women had been fighting alongside the black and slave community for their voting rights. And it was a way of like dividing that group that they, you know, okay, now we're going to let black men vote, but women not yet still. So again, it's like, you're free, but not you, not yet. Add to that,
2: after black men were given the right to the vote, Southern states in particular managed to put so many hurdles in the way Mm -hmm. that they functionally couldn't for a long, long time. And so even when we can look back at times and go, but wait, there was this official moment, say the Emancipation Proclamation. There was this official moment or something really good happened. Okay, you're right. That was a really good proclamation or moment. But the next question is, did anybody actually get to experience it? Mm -hmm. And then that requires decades often before people actually begin to have the freedom that was promised them in this particular way.
1: And I think we have to think about the bitterness that might foment in people who have been told that they're free, but that's not their lived reality. That's mm-hmm. not their lived experience. Because I think, you know, for example, like with the example that you were given, Anthony, there were probably so many white people, especially in the North during that time who were just like, well, we did it. We solved it. There's no more slavery. The abolitionists are like, great. It's done. The lived experience of people in the South who were going through the black codes. And then the Jim Crow yeah. era was like, you're telling us are free, but we're, that's not how we're living. That's not our experience. And I just feel like that would create, it's a gaslighting, impact you know for one and it would just create so much resentment and bitterness I think over time that you promise the sweet thing that's always out of your
0: reach mm-hmm. I think that's actually where so much of my frustration lies is I've tried to advocate and shed light on some of these issues the last couple of years is that you have discussions with a, f- a fellow white men that don't think that these things are still a problem and to them it is they're treating it as such a clear line ah 1865 that was done <laughs> and so Now people have to just take care of themselves. And we kind of mentioned the bootstrap mentality in the last episode, but there are a lot of people that kind of live in that and saying, Hey, there's, there's nothing that's still on the books saying that these minorities are treated unfairly. So now it's up to them to, to get on par with me or or whatever it might be. And that's where so much of my frustration lies is the inability to see how it wasn't just these clear lines where things all of a sudden changed one day. There were, the continuous hurdles that were being put up. And, and it's just, it's really frustrating. I think when we talk about things like systemic racism and how maybe you can convince someone that, that there's racism, that's rooted in an individual's heart. And it's a whole different discussion to have uh, with them and talking about some of the systemic oppression and stuff that still exists too.
2: Yeah. It can be embedded in systems. Mm -hmm. So this is where we talk about the Indian schools, right? So Mm -hmm. going back to what happened with the native American population, Um, their population from the time Columbus arrived into the mid 1800s or early 1900s, their population in the United States, what eventually became the United States had dropped by 95%, which is just an astonishing number. It's a genocidal number. I mean, there's no way around it. If you would see this happen anywhere else in the world, we would look at it and go 95% of a population was destroyed. Now, granted that started long before the United States was a thing it was just something that the momentum continued. So everything from having million, tens of millions of acreage of land stolen, having sources of food destroyed, the Buffalo, like when the, when the trains came in and they built the railroads, they destroyed the Buffalo. This was a huge shift in the culture of Native Americans. You have the, um, the schools that were starting, I think, was it the, uh, not, was it the Carlisle schools, mm-hmm. the first one? And in those schools, Native American children are forcibly taken away from their parents. They are educated in such a way so they will purposefully get the lowest paying jobs. They're trying to, quote, kill the Indian and save the man that has turned them, quote, unquote, white. And by the time kids got out of the school, if they did, because many of them died, they were often deeply at odds with their home community because they had totally lost touch with their families. This continued that the last school closed in the 80s in northern Michigan. And I had a student in class at NMC who's either parents or grandparents were in that school. And he was talking about the legacy that these schools have left. I mean, a, a huge part of it is a financial legacy. Just over and over, you don't get to create generational wealth like other people get to. And over and over, you are undereducated and you're given a message that says, your culture is not enough. You must do this other thing. And that is something that is affecting people alive today in very real ways. And so, yeah, I look at that and I go, okay, how does the Native American population celebrate our historical landmarks very differently than we do? Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. I mean, so we talk about one of our most cherished freedoms as Americans would be like freedom of religion, freedom, you know, of speech. And yet that freedom wasn't extended to the native American community. They weren't allowed to practice their religion or their culture. I mentioned you guys before the show, but I'm going through a history class right now. So I'm just, some of this stuff is fresh in my mind. And I was talking about my outrage at this ceremony that they would do, where they would force native Americans to be in their regalia, to shoot the symbolic last um, arrow from their bow, and then go into a tent and change into like white man's clothing and come out and like get a farming implement and be like, great. Now you're white. Like, When I think today about how many Christians I've seen write or tweet or post about their persecution complex and their feeling of being persecuted as Christians, and I'm not saying that Christians don't sometimes encounter that hostility within our culture, but to think about being forced to completely surrender your entire identity and culture and religion and adopt someone else's forcibly. Like we never really think about that in the freedom of religion context, but that was definitely a freedom that was not extended yeah. to Native Americans.
0: It was an all-encompassing attack on that culture. You can shift, I think, a culture simply by removing 95% of the population. <laughs> sure. That would <laughs> drastically alter yeah. the culture. You're you're killing people that would otherwise be able to pass down traditions and all those things that are involved in that. And then it's like, oh, we can't we can't risk any of this. We have to also put the remaining people into these boarding schools and and essentially try to turn those remaining 5% white, you know, throughout the years. And that's just, it's just a a staggering attack on an entire culture. It's really like makes me kind of sick to even think about it.
2: So I'm going to add on top of that, it wasn't just that kind of experience, but the public perception that was shaped during that time. So example I gave to my church when I gave this message was that L. Frank Baum, who wrote The Wizard of Oz, Mm -hmm. he wrote several editorials in national newspapers calling for the extermination of Native Americans. Like he basically said, and the way I'm gonna phrase it is nice compared to what he said, they are so worthless uh, that we might as well commit one more atrocity. He actually said that. We might as well commit one more grievous Mm -hmm. harm against them and completely do away with them. And that was L. Frank Baum. It was a mainstream in our culture. And those kind of conversations that were shaping public opinion we not unusual, unfortunately. Mm-hmm.
0: I think about Teddy Roosevelt too. I think there was a quote that you had had in your notes as well, where he was saying, I don't go so far as to believe that um, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, but he's like, I think nine out of 10 are, and I don't want to inquire about the tenth. Yep. And so I have a freaking Teddy Roosevelt poster hanging over there. I took it down, not because I'm canceling him, <laughs> but I'm rearranging stuff. But um, that those are things that I think, we should grapple with, like, I want to grapple with, do Mm -hmm. I want this dude hanging on my wall or not? I like Teddy Roosevelt for the fact that he set aside all these public lands Mm -hmm. that we'd get to use. We're one of the only countries in the entire world that has millions and millions of acres that belong to us, the the people. And now that is strange to say after we talked about the Native Americans, (laughs) but um, those are things that I appreciate about him. And then you hear stuff like that. And it's like, I just want to know, everything. I want to know as much as I can and I want to know the context for which those things were said. And it, it's, it's We have to struggle with these things.
2: Well, haven't we talked about this before? This mixed legacy that everybody has. Yeah. And to try to only see the bad would be just as unfortunate as to only see the good. The reality is uh, people and cultures and systems are a mixed bag. And we have to see honestly that there were good things, that we're a blessing to certain people and we want to celebrate times that individuals, cultures, and systems are blessings. We also have to recognize there's times where those do damage to people and we have to see them honestly. Is it the idea that if we don't learn from history, we repeat it?
1: Yeah. I was looking when we were talking. So I had just heard this um, Fresh Air interview the other day and I wanted to mention. So like another one, like the Second Amendment, which we did a separate episode about previously, another deeply cherished American right. Like if you're getting into the biggest rights that people care about, it's usually the Second Amendment, the First Amendment. And so the Second Amendment, I just want to plug this historian's book because it was such an interesting interview. Her name's Carol Anderson, and she has a book out that's called The Second Race and Guns in a Fatally Unequal America. And she talks about how the Second Amendment has never applied to black people. Mm. Like, it, it, they have. there were so many decades where black people were not allowed to own guns, were not allowed to participate in militias. They might
2: have been helpful during the times of the lynchings. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. And that's, yes, exactly. And that's part of it is there was this deep fear that, after the emancipation that you know, black people were going to take this revenge and so no one wanted to allow them to have weapons and the second amendment was really crafted the language of it was crafted so that slave owners could crush any kind of rebellions fairly quickly that was they were meant to be armed but black people were not meant to be armed and we still see the implications of that today when a 13 year old who's holding something that's a toy that looks like a gun is gunned down by the police I mean we we see a lot of times black people themselves just in black bodies as weapons, and then any sort of additional threat could be, you know, is is so unnerving to white people um, that we react very violently. So again, just another example of like this freedom that it's like, oh, it's so great. I have the Second Amendment. It's like, okay, but a lot of people don't get to enjoy that in the same mm-hmm. way that you do.
2: Yeah,
0: there's a lot of that thinking that I think is still embedded, and these this thinking was created in order to oppress. Uh, black people and that they're more inclined to things like crime and criminal activity. And so if that's the case, then it's only that much worse if they're also armed at the same time, they're already dangerous. And Mm -hmm. so we can't also have them armed. And that's so much of the thinking. And you're right. I think it does still exist in some sense.
2: Isn't Charles Murray back in the news, the bell curve author. Um, I've been reading some articles. He's been making the argument that um, certain races of people are inherently smarter and some are yeah. inherently dumber. Mm-hmm. And he, yeah, he's been doing, I believe it's recent interviews where he's been kind of ruffling some feathers again, as you might expect with making those kind of claims. And you, you could probably expect where the hierarchy stacks up, but yeah, that, that continues this idea that there is not like a sub race, but that there is a distinction. There are people who are simply smarter, that associates with their race mm-hmm. people who are dumber that associates with their race. And when you have that kind of ideology out there, it's going to be really tough to, to, uh, to get people on the same page mm-hmm. about the equality of humanity. Mm-hmm. And For, yeah, those,
0: for those people yeah, that, that think those things and they point to things like, you know, the crime rates in Chicago or these bigger cities to justify that type of racist thinking. Um, you also have to ask yourself then why are all serial killers white? I mean, you know, there's you very rarely find a serial killer that is not a white
1: man. Or like, no, this new breed of domestic terrorists. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like, yeah, it's it's
2: it's a pretty niche group. Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> for me too, I, I just have to I have to mention, I mean, you know, we're talking about race and Anthony, I know you did you mentioned you were doing research in a sermon about this. I I wanna mention Pride Month too, because for me, this is just I've seen so many comments about this and now having been involved with a local group for a couple of years um, and uh, helping moderate their social media. I've really seen all the comments that have come, come in about it I'll as bet. well as as a journalist when I've written stories for the ticker about issues related to pride. Um, I see the comments. and you know the main comment I get over and over and over is um, from from people who are sort of hostile to the idea of Pride Month or a pride flag being flown on city property or whatever it might be. all these issues have come up lately. Is that like, I don't have a problem with people gay, being gay. I just don't want it in my face. I don't know why they need this, all the celebration. Like, why are we constantly giving them special treatment, paying attention to them? Like, we're a straight month. Like, I've heard every iteration of these comments. And I think like how this ties into what we're talking about today is, again, it's this idea of like, when you set white as a default or you set straight as a default, you are you have blinders on to what other people's experiences are like and having now worked with the lgbtq plus community for a few years more intensely i i have gone through such an education and part of that education has just been working like for example i like get a merch table at a pride event wearing pride gear people don't know i'm straight it's not a skin color thing so you can't tell in the comments like i've gotten from people mm. um and the looks like it's. It made me so ashamed, and it wasn't because of how I was being treated. Because I knew deep down, if I wanted to, I could just take my pride shirt off right. and be like, "But wait, I'm straight. You got it all wrong." Um, it, it just made me realize what my friends were going through, and like when I would go out to like a rural bar uh, with a group of obviously pride folks, maybe folks who are non-binary or aren't presenting in a typical, stereotypical gender or sexual way or whatever. Just the sort of the ambiance of hostility, the little like the what people call microaggressions, the little comments, the little side glances. I had to spend a lot of time with people going into those situations to understand what that experience was like. And it was so eye opening and made me so ashamed that I had been blind to it for so long. So again, when I see something like Pride Month, it's because you know, we just went through an administration where like transgender people were being denied like medical and health protections. They couldn't serve in the military. Like a lot of states, gay people can still be fired for being gay. Like they don't have all the rights and protections that straight people do. And that's like what the month is about. It's not just being like, we're gay and in your face. And, you know, it's, We don't have the same rights and privileges that everyone else do. And we're going to keep advocating for that and using months of visibility like this until it truly is equal. So it's one of those things I always like to bring attention to people. It's like you don't have a straight month because every day is straight day for you Mm -hmm. in this country. That's the default is straight privilege. And I think it's just really important if you're in a default, a cultural default, default that you don't assume that your lived experience is the same as everyone else's.
2: I'm always amazed at how easily hostile people are to others that for whatever reason they don't like, like just your examples of going places and the comments that you get. I've never understood why people feel like this is a good, well, I I don't think they've thought about this much, but this is a good exercise of freedom. Right. I will, (laughs) I will emote and say my hostility or derision because it, I mean, it's one thing if we have disagreements with people, it's quite another thing to think it's okay to do that kind of um, hostile behavior is probably my best word. Mm -hmm. I've I've never understood that.
0: Yeah. And I think what, so Beth had shared an article as we are kind of prepping for this episode and it's from Northern Express. We'll link to it in the show notes called Life on the Margins. And when you talk about all these things and these microaggressions, what this article did for me is to say these people are in our communities. Like these are our fellow community members. And I just, I couldn't imagine treating people that way. I'm not trying to be all high and mighty, but just don't treat people that way, especially when they are part of your community. Like you're going to see them again. You're supposed to be able to work together to create uh, something special in this area. And so it was really sad to hear some of the stories that were outlined. And I think they also did a good job outlining some of the positive interactions that they've had too, because I think you do have to, to also bring light to that, but the discussion needs to definitely more be on the side of the negative interactions that are happening. And, and maybe what do you do when you see something like that? And how do you, how are you reacting in those situations in a way that maybe you're not even aware of because a glance, just because you're not quite sure what you're seeing mm-hmm. can mean a lot to that person that you're gl- making that glance at. I think it's the stuff like that absolutely.
2: I don't think you're being all high and mighty. I think you're being
0: a decent human being. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It just seems like now that that's almost high and mighty yes, at times.
1: Yeah. that article, the Northern Express, so that's a sister publication of the ticker, which I write for. So I was, it was, I was proud to see that piece and similarly to the pride month comments, I see comments anytime we do any sort of story about racial issues in the community where so many white people are like, I've lived in Traverse City my whole life. It's not racist. You know, I've never seen anyone be racist here. And then you will literally have people of color in the comment section being like, this just happened to me at the gas store gas yeah. station this morning. Yep. <laughs> you know, and and white people still will just be like, just not believe them. And I'm like, how of course you're not experiencing racism. I I can't believe I have to say this. It's obvious. You are white. You mm-hmm. are not going to experience that. Black people are. Um, and so part of it is just believing people of different experiences when they tell you about what they're experiencing. Um, and maybe having a little bit of empathy, like just a little bit of curiosity about what's happening outside of your immediate bubble. <laughs> mm-hmm.
2: Oh, I've heard stories from people in my church. I had no idea. And I I was asking some people one time, what has been your experience here? And oh, they had stories. I had no idea. And they were appalling. And I'm like, Taylor, I don't mean to be all high and mighty when I say that. Like, <laughs> look how outraged I am. I just, I mean, genuinely they were things that were said and done were just terrible. And yeah, it's, it's clearly here. Like, like you said, I've not been on the receiving end of that Mm -hmm. because I don't fall into that category, but it certainly happens. Can I do a a real brief historical backtrack that is going to come back around to Beth to what you were just talking about. So a year or two ago, I read a book called American Nations a History of the 11 Arrival Regional Cultures of North America by oh, Colin Woodard.
0: I read that too, yeah. It's
2: Just good. a fantastic book. But one of the things he's showing in there is that there is no one US history. And by that, he means there are 11, functionally 11 different kind of foundational um, headwaters that start in the United States. And over time, they kind of flow together. And I think he says it's down to like three main streams but we often get a teaching in American history that takes one of those streams when the reality is it's a lot more complex than that. So not that the stream didn't happen, there was just more going on. And an example that has stuck in my mind about uh, freedoms, and I'll, I'll try to explain it here in a second, is that when you had Irish and Scottish immigrants moving into what's now Appalachia, they were very purposefully discriminated against such that they had a very hard time making a living. Like they had a hard time getting land, a farm. They had a hard time getting all these things that the people around them were getting to be able to, yeah, earn a living. So they ended up going to the one thing that could be very mobile and make a lot of money. And that was moonshine. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you had, so they had freedom, you could say, and yet they didn't the same as everybody else. Something that came up in the discussion at our church after the message they gave was this tension between what does it look like to be personally responsible with what you have been given versus uh, what are times when things are aligned against you such that even if you are responsible with what you've been given, you just have huge hurdles to overcome that are not of your making and set you back. We had a good discussion about that, like when we talk about things in our history. It's not an either or people's experience. It's a both and. But I feel like the Irish and Scots are a good example of they were trying to be responsible. They were trying to make something happen with what they had been given, but they were not given what most other people were given. And it ordered at least that part of their history in a particular way. And it just makes me think today of, well, we, we do have a lot of freedoms in the United States. And thankfully, we have addressed a lot of these issues in the past such that I guess you can make an argument that today is maybe better than it's ever been. And yet that goes back to a standard of lynchings and bombings and, you know, genocide, right? So it doesn't mean there's not a long ways to go, but you can look at it and go, oh, okay. A lot of these things have been dealt with. Okay. Even if that's true, I think we have to acknowledge that there continues to be a lot of instances in all kinds of different groups that we've talked about here today where Even if you're asking people, just be responsible with what you have. Okay, they are. But what if they are not being given the opportunities, the education, the generational wealth, the you name it. If they are not being given these things, there is going to be a a different experience of what it's like to live in America with all the blessings that come with freedom. And I, I feel like that's part of what we're talking about here today is trying to honestly see where is this happening? And and I'm not saying it to create a sense of personal guilt in people because I don't know what people's stories are, but surely we can look at our culture and ask the question, what does it look like to remove unfair hurdles that stop people from experiencing the kind of freedom that is part of the American ideal? Mm
0: -hmm. Did that make sense at all? Yeah, Yeah,
2: totally.
0: I like that you said the the guilt thing and not because I'm trying to avoid guilt myself, but Right now, there's also, and I think we should maybe talk about this specifically in a different episode, but the critical race theory stuff. I was that's, just thinking the same thing. Place. I was
1: like, it's probably a whole yeah. other episode, but I and agree. Yeah.
0: So many people <laughs> are, are putting up their defenses over this critical race uh, theory in which they can't even define themselves. And then people that they're arguing with oftentimes can't define it themselves either. But I actually know critical race theory scholars. And the one um, scholar that I know who's trained in critical race theory has said, guilt is not helpful. It's not supposed to be part of it. He's like, guilt leads to paralysis and paralysis doesn't lead to change or progress or anything. And so, Mm -hmm. um, when we talk about guilt, I think a lot of people assume that this guilt is baked in and that the guilt is supposed to be something, um, that groups of people are getting others to feel. And I, I would just encourage people to kind of look past that idea because guilt, at its face doesn't really do anything, but I think it is an awareness of what's gone wrong, what has been wrong in the past and how can we move forward from there? So guilt specifically, I wanted to hit on.
1: No, I'm I'm so glad you did. Cause I was thinking about that too. And I think we're in kind of a dangerous time right now where we're sort of actively oppressing a lot of even just conversation about some of these topics or education about some of these topics. And so like definitely the movement nationwide to start introducing legislation in a lot of states limiting the way that we can teach history, um, is pretty concerning (laughs) to me. Um, having actually, again, now just having history fresh in my mind, going through this class of like, that was very common during the slavery period. For example, like it was illegal at times to talk about slavery in anything but positive terms, you know, to, to, to distribute abolitionist, um, you know, pamphlets, for example. So, that's a very easy and convenient way to for a majority to dominate the narrative is to like actually make it illegal (laughs) to prioritize a minority narrative. Um, and so for me, like, I I'm just, I'm hoping that that movement changes, or I think I do want to do a separate episode on critical race theory, but cause I, I don't think many people even understand what they're saying. I think it's become a convenient catch all term to put any sort of conversation about race that makes you uncomfortable into a basket that you can just like put in the corner of the room and never have to deal with again. And when we have, you know, so many white people getting defensive and saying like, I don't want to, apologize for being white or I don't have white privilege. Like I struggle. I don't have money. I'm in poverty. I have my own challenges. Okay. We get those things. But I think to go to what Anthony was saying, this idea of stewardship, which is something we talked about before with the income episode, what have you been given? I think social standing, skin color, gender, all of those things can come with their own set of privileges and challenges. And I think also maybe could be thinking of in terms of stewardship. So, you know, as an example, you two white men walking through the grocery store. I don't know how often you get harassed <laughs> when you go to get groceries. As a white woman, I occasionally get harassed, like cat-called, you know, like men making a comment about my body or my appearance or something. As a transgender person, I might get a lot more flack going through the grocery store or a black person with security following me around and see if I'm in a shoplift in the store. So like those do have inherent privileges attached to them. And what I'm just trying to think about is like, I have some challenges as a woman that maybe you guys don't have as men. Um, but I certainly don't have the level of challenges that I think like a black woman has or a Mm -hmm. transgender woman has. And so I'm comfortable with like, addressing the areas of my life where I struggle. And like, I think it's okay to have that, but I want to be a stewardship of the places that I'm privileged and use that on behalf of people who have less privilege. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I, I had thought of that same exact thing of this hierarchy that exists. And it's, um, it's interesting. I would be, it would be difficult for me to find a time where I guess I felt uncomfortable in a public place. And if there ever was a time I think it, it would have to be a time where there were other males in the room that were like physically larger than me. And they knew they were larger than me. Like the gym. Yeah. Like I'm not just, yeah, I'm not intimidated by um, a man that's larger than me unless he's like wielding his size in a way that's kind of weird. I don't know. And um, there is maybe like one time I remember a college class that I had where there was a gentleman in the class who was just giant and he knew it and he was bullying people and he was physically imposing in the class. And I just remember thinking like, why are we doing this right now? Like we're all adults. And it was just this really strange thing, but I'm hard pressed to even think of a moment. And so then to talk to my wife and to hear her experiences at work and just the differences and how you have to approach things like going to your car or, you know, how dark out is it? Um, Shopping alone, like all these different things that, that you really have to think deeply about that I take for granted And so that hierarchy is interesting and our good friend tom gordon i think had made a good point in a recent conversation we had with him where thinking if you're trying to get someone to understand um some of these privileges that might exist is to take a look at your life specifically and then pretend that you're black or pretend that you're transgender and ask would your life have been a little more difficult that's not to say that your life didn't have difficulties that you didn't have to work through things but would it have been more difficult for me, Taylor, to have been black? I can say unequivocally, 100% yes. Because guess what? I would have been one of maybe two or three black kids in my entire school. So it's pretty easy for me to understand that that would have complicated things and made things more difficult. So if that's an exercise that's at all helpful for people, I would encourage you to try it.
1: I want to throw something to Anthony real quick. The other way you could do that, and that's such a great idea. And we could maybe as, you know, if, at the wrap up of the show, we could talk about maybe some things that we're reading or watching or that, that have been helping. Cause I know we're all have been researching and trying to have this issue on our heart. But the other thing you could do is to make yourself a minority um, by going into spaces that are dominated by people who are different than you. Um, So like I said, like working as a straight ally with pride groups, like I, I, put myself in those spaces and learn so much just by being in those spaces and hearing people and meeting lots of different people, not having like one token queer friend, but like actually really trying to get to know people of different backgrounds. You know, if you're traveling in different parts of the country, going into predominantly black communities, going into black churches, like in a way that's like not hopefully intrusive or like imposing yourself in there and making other people feel uncomfortable, but just like put yourself in environments where you're not the main story and you're not the main attraction and just feel how it feels for you. You. Like a lot of people, if you're a white person who's the only white person in a crowd of black people, you're like, Whoa, I feel a bit weird. Yeah. That's what pe- black people feel like all the time mm-hmm. when they're like at the grocery store in a white community. And I wanted to toss it to you. Cause I ne- remember you told me before about going to a sports stadium, I think with a friend. I, I wondered <laughs> if you could share that. Cause yeah. I think that's a good way of thinking about that.
2: Yeah. When you said that, Beth, I've been thinking about a couple different things. Like you can even do that regionally in the United States. Before I got married, I spent a couple summers as a camp counselor in Hazard County, Kentucky. And I did not fit in. And it was clear when I went places with my Ohio license plate and I I was not a local and I felt it. There was no doubt about it. Um, that's a whole different discussion. And it's nothing like what other people experience. But early on, early on that would be the closest thing I'd have had to that. What you're talking about, Beth, is a friend of mine took me to a rival soccer match in San Jose, Costa Rica at about a 10,000 person stadium. As we're walking there, he said, hey, I'm going to buy you a jersey. So I'm like, awesome. He's going to buy me a jersey. So he buys me a jersey. I put it on. He goes, now you need to know this is the visiting team's jersey. These are the (laughs) two most rival teams in Costa Rica. And as we walk to the stadium, people will say things to you. They might even throw things at you. And I'm like, why would you do this to me? And he It's said, a free shirt, man. It's a free shirt. He said, because I want you to have just a small experience of what it is like to be an outsider and to not feel comfortable. Because he said, Anthony, you haven't had that experience. Mm. So sure enough, we're walking to the stadium. People are saying stuff to me. I can't understand it. My friend's laughing. I'm like, what'd they say? He says, you don't want to know. <laughs> uh, you know, we go into the stadium. We You're checked for loose coins. I was checked twice before I got in there. Uh, they check everybody, I might add, so you can't throw coins at people. There's mounted horsemen everywhere. I mean, they're they're aware that this could get ugly. I get into the statement, or stadium. I'm going to say 5% of people there were wearing the visiting jersey. The home crowd is, is just singing with great gusto all of these songs <laughs> where they're swearing at the other team. And, and my buddy is just getting the biggest kick out of this. And as the game unfolds, my team, quote unquote, scores first. And what was a fairly jovial attitude in the stadium took a turn. (laughs) And at that point, I put on
0: my jacket to cover up, (laughs) to cover it up. Like you were responsible, like you scored the goal yourself. (laughs) Yeah, yeah.
2: Uh, Fortunately, the game ended in a tie. So it was all good. But that has really stuck with me that for two to three hours, two to three hours only, in a very minor way, I was super conscious that I was different and that the people around me were viewing me with a particular lens simply because of the color of my Jersey in this case. So I, I have no idea what that translates into someone having a life experience where this seems to be the norm that everywhere they go, that kind of tension simmers beneath the surface. Mm. Um, and so I, I don't share that story to suggest I quote unquote understand.
1: Yeah. I was going to yeah say the same thing. Cause at the end of yep. the day you can put the jacket on. I can take yep. my rainbow shirt off and go back to my default comfort yep. and security. And those people can't like, it's just their lived reality yeah. all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: You're right. That's exactly what I did. Mm-hmm. We get home and the next day and it's all just a memory. And I haven't had to experience something like that again.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I like those examples of kind of, I guess it, for those brief periods actually living in that experience because the other thing that i've heard from my my friends that is that they get really worn out by having to educate other people all the time mm-hmm. and so i was I, I think i was guilty of it too even last year where i was just reaching out and just saying hey what should i be doing what do you need me to be doing and i'm putting all this pressure back on them in addition to the pressure they're already feeling for just merely existing and that was really um, important for me to understand is that sometimes we can be counterproductive by putting so much of the pressure back on them and their responsibility back on those people that um, to educate us and say, you know, this is what you should be doing all the time. It's really tiring and mm-hmm. it's not something that they should have to have to deal with on top of everything else.
1: Yeah. I think when I was like, like we grew in the pride community, like when I was starting out, like I would, you know, misgender someone or use the wrong pronouns or whatever, like I was ignorant and I was trying to learn and I was doing it in a clumsy way. And people were very gracious with me because I think they could see that I was really wanting to be an ally and trying and I was asking questions and learning. But like over time, having spent a lot of time around that, I saw how often they got misgendered, Mm -hmm. how often they had to do the educational thing, how often they had to be patient when people ask questions about their genitals or like their sex lives or just like And seeing like, oh, my one interaction with them, I just, you know, someone was nice to me, thankfully and kind. And I like went on my way and I was like, oh, I feel better. I feel woke now. I'm really learning all this stuff. But then watching them have to go through the exhaustion of doing that over and over and over and over and over again every single day. I was like, I don't I genuinely don't know how to do it. And that's why, like, I was comfortable having this conversation today even though it's three white people talking about marginalized communities only because I want the community, the conversation to be is like, what are we doing as white people? Like, what are we doing with this privilege? How are we trying to educate ourselves? Maybe encouraging our podcast listeners who are in the same sort of white privilege boat, which is a lot of us in Northern Michigan, just to think about, you know, some of this stuff and challenge a little bit to like get outside your comfort zone. And just, it's so, exhausting, I think, for marginalized people to live through this every day that I think the least we can do as white people is like, have some conversations about like, how are we making this better or worse? Or like, what can we be doing? And because when I'm having a conversation with someone from the queer community or someone who's BIPOC, I'm not going to center my experience. I'm just going to listen. But if it's us three talking, I just want us to like talk w- with other white people about you guys. Like we need to be better. We need to be doing something better here.
2: Well, is a part of this where just trying to ask the question, how can we love those around us better than we have before? Mm. And part of that is just getting to see and know and try to understand people. And yeah, that's where I think this kind of conversation is important. I like to walk into situations with more tools than I had before that prepare me to be a um, a loving and a good presence in people's life, something that's a blessing to them rather than something that's a hurdle for them. So I I don't know if we, I don't think you can have these kind of conversations too much. It's, yeah. I I think that's the goal. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I I think for me and just maybe how I've altered, how I approach things the last few years is just to number one, right off the bat, just lower my defenses. Like even if it's something that I'm not going to be in total agreement um, after I've considered it, like, Still, just if you if you put those defenses down, you're much more open to seeing things for the way that they actually are. And so we could even talk specifically about critical race theory or something like that, where I think the conversations are happening between people that just have their defenses and and they batten down the hatches uh, before they've even really like looked at things, I guess. And so, listen, this isn't me like saying that you all should go along with what critical race theory is, honestly, because I don't even know what it is, um, <laughs> but that, that's just an example that's taking place right now where we have people that are on the defensive that are then try, thinking they're having conversations when they're really not. And so if I can lower my defenses and just consider the realities of other people, um, I'm getting a much more accurate portrayal of what their existence is like every day, I think.
1: Yeah, I think maybe one just easy thing you can do is if someone in any way ever says to you that was sexist or that was racist. To not automatically defend yourself. Yeah, don't be like so. take, take a beat um, and maybe even take some time and just say like, okay, I, I don't think I meant it that way, but I want to think about what you said and I'll go back. You know, like you don't have to be like, I'm not racist. I'm a good person. Like, because I think we, we've talked about this before, but like sexism and racism and all these kinds of things are not just like. Character flaws, their systems and actions that you can participate in, even if you're not intending to be that way. So it's just like I think Anthony and I, or we talked before about like difference between telling a lie and being a liar. You know, like you can do something that might be a racist or sexist joke. It doesn't mean that your heart is inherently racist or sexist, but maybe you're participating in that system in a way you're not even aware of. So definitely the defense of this is I think it'd be like the number one thing as a white person myself. I'm not super like I don't think I'm woke and perfect and like have all the answers to major issues like racism. I do think like the one simple thing you can do is maybe think about your privilege. Think about what freedom might mean differently for other people than you. And if someone says to you, hey, this sort of violated my experience or made me feel a certain way, just having that breath to like, be like, I'm open to hearing that and to changing so that you're not perpetuating a racist thing over and over and over again. Mm-hmm.
2: A Practical example of something else that I think provides a template for what you're just talking about. If my wife and I are having a conversation and she says, uh, okay, what you just said offended me. I may know in my heart that I did not mean for that to be offensive. And so we could, that could devolve into an argument, I didn't mean to offend you, but you did offend me. Well, this is stupid, right? Or I can go, all right, I, I didn't intend to offend you, but I clearly did. And I would like to understand why so that I don't repeat this process.
1: Right.
2: And as we talk about it, there's two possible outcomes. One is I did not choose my words carefully and I need to do better next time. Another possibility is eh, my wife could have read too much into it, but even if she did, my goal isn't to make her change so much as my goal is, okay, I don't want to walk back into that situation. Um, fair or unfair, how my words were heard, they landed a particular way and that ought to matter to me. And so I think the same thing you're commenting when somebody says that was sexist or that was racist. Okay. Even if I know I didn't intend it that way, it landed a particular way. I think it's important that as a decent human being, I seek to understand why it landed that way. And if at the end of the day, no matter the reason, I know when I say things like that, it's going to feel sexist or racist. I think it's on me to change how I speak. Mm -hmm. I don't have to, they they don't have to show up on my terms, right? I, I think I have to understand what it looks like to try to honor them. When I talk, surely I can choose words that can go down better.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have one more little thing. We were actually, Abby and I were discussing it after one of your previous messages about this. And and I'm not talking about a verbal default. Like some of us just have things we default to verbally um, as a response to someone else. And I hear all the time, I didn't know. And I wonder outside of it just being a default that people might naturally have is when someone educates us on, you know, the use of proper pronouns or um, something sexist that we said, whatever it might be. Sometimes when we respond with, I didn't know, that in some way is making it their fault all over again because Mm -hmm. they didn't tell us yet or they didn't educate us yet and they're making it difficult for us to figure things out. And I actually, like you'd said, kind of prefer more of, I should, I think I should have known that Mm -hmm. Um, I'll do better next time. Something like that. Because you had gave the example of shooting the arrow over the, over the roof and hitting somebody. It's like one response when you walk up to that person, you hit and they have an arrow sticking out of their arm is like, I didn't know you were over there. (laughs) Right. right. (laughs) And So that tells them, Hey, you should have been yelling. You should have been hollering. You should have made your presence known. And it's like, actually a better response is I shouldn't have I shouldn't have done that. Or I should have known not should to have do that. To see yeah, if I there people there. <laughs> yeah. And so I, I would also just kind of checking your language, I guess, in a little, in some of those smaller ways of like, when you say something, don't put the responsibility back on the person that you're interacting with. Instead, take some responsibility yourself. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for tuning into this episode. If we don't have anything else, um, I really appreciate sitting down with you guys. And again, I want to encourage you to go read the article that Beth had shared. It's from Northern Express. It'll be in the show notes. And particularly if you live in this area, it's important to understand the experiences of our fellow community members. So Beth, Anthony, thank you guys so much.